Good morning, Living Faith family. Uh, I, you know, I first got familiar with Jesus uh, in Sunday school. Uh, we called it junior church, and uh, I was just a little guy, and there would be people that would be telling me these stories of Jesus, and we would sing these songs like, like Jesus loves me, and then they would pull out this, this multimedia presentation called the flannel graph. And it was a very impressive, sophisticated uh, presentation where they would have these cutout images that would then stick onto a piece of felt that they had draped over something. Uh, and it, it, did, it did the job. You know, it captured, it captured my imagination. And, and one of the early stories I remember uh, is the story of Zacchaeus. And I can picture the flannel graph of Zacchaeus. And, and I want you to take a look at this high-tech imagery. Uh, you can see Zacchaeus propped up in the tree. Uh, what's handy is Zacchaeus can be in the tree like that, or he could also be sitting in the chair. Uh, and those people are clustered together. That's, that's one image that they would put uh, on the piece of felt. And so, so give me a break. This is decades before VeggieTales. This is decades before the, the Bible Project, and it's very cool drawing. So this is, this is what we had to, to tell the stories. And, and so this is Zacchaeus's story. And so I want to I start this morning by telling you Zacchaeus' story. So take a look at uh, the, um, the flannel graph as I read to you the story as recorded by Luke in chapter 19 of his gospel. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and he was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was so small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone on to, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Since he was, uh, since also he is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, Zacchaeus' story, it's a, it's a profound story, and it is filled with, 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 with very significant themes. First of all, Zacchaeus, he wants to see Jesus. That speaks to some deep desire in his heart. And Luke is very careful with the language here. It says that Zacchaeus is seeking to see He's trying to figure out how can he get close enough to be able to see Jesus, but probably not too close uh, in order that he wouldn't be seen. So he's interested, he's intrigued, but he's going to maintain some distance. And then Jesus is, is drawing close to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus gets discovered. And then Jesus says to him, uh, Zacchaeus, you, you come down uh, for I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to go to where you live. I'm going to join up uh, and get close to you. And so Zacchaeus is discovered. And then Zacchaeus receives Jesus into his home. 
And Jesus went to what was the shameful place for Zacchaeus, which represented his place of wealth, his place of power, because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And as a tax collector, he was a traitor to his own people. And he used that position in order to skim wealth for himself um, and then hand over the rest of the taxes to the Romans. And what's interesting is Zacchaeus, as Jesus comes close to his house, Zacchaeus changes his, changes his allegiance. Zacchaeus decides that Jesus is Lord. And so he repents and he demonstrates his repentance uh, by giving back um, fourfold of what he had stolen, of what he had taken. And Jesus declares, Zacchaeus first declares Jesus is Lord. Zacchaeus then, uh, Jesus then declares that salvation had come to Zacchaeus's house. So you see, there's this significant movement that's going on, but, but here's the problem. However, the, the Jesus in these stories is perfectly white. I mean, do you notice Jesus' clothes? I mean, his, his garment is spotless. It's, it's dazzling white, even though he'd been walking along the road, even though he's going to places where, uh, going to places where it would be of ill repute. Like, like Jesus looks perfect. There's no tension of shame, scorn, turmoil. The, the images of the story are, are clean, and they clean it so well that there's no, there's no intrigue. Uh, his hair is perfect. His beard is, is finely trimmed. So the flannel graph has the ability to, to, to tell the story, but it also has the ability to oversimplify Jesus and oversimplify the point to the point where it's hard for the real Jesus to even emerge um, from the flannel graph images. Now, let me be clear. I have nothing against the flannel graph. It was, it was very significant in my spiritual formation. Uh, and, and it is necessary to oversimplify stories when you're talking to children that are two, three, four years old. However, my concern is this. My concern is that our understanding of Jesus and our portraits of Jesus may never emerge past the flannel graph stage. I tend to think we have a generation of Jesus followers that, that have a flannel graph image of Jesus, and they have an elementary understanding and perspective of who Jesus is. And we need to be clear, that's not Jesus. Jesus is more than a nice, thoughtful, considerate man to a Zacchaeus that is a little marginalized and, and hurt. Jesus is far more than that. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the king. And when, you, when the king comes to your house, things are going to change. That's the power of the Zacchaeus story. Philip Yancey uh, picks up on this same theme where we have kind of whitewashed the power and impact of Jesus. Uh, and Philip Yancey says this, he says, uh, how would telling people to be nice to one another get a man crucified? What government would execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? Here's my contention. The reason at times we lack faith in who Jesus is or what he's doing is that we have a very small or a very reduced picture of who Jesus was and what he did. 
So if we're going to be able to face the, the realities of, of pandemics and uh, the, the challenges of the day we live in, we have to have a better understanding of who Jesus is now. And if we want to know who Jesus is now, we have to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus did. So we need to get a bigger picture of Jesus. And we need to get a better understanding of what he did in order to walk in the confidence of who he is and in the certainty of what he will do. So I have two realities about Jesus that I want us to consider. That, and I think these realities contribute uh, to our challenge and they point to our need for getting a right view of Jesus. So here's the first thing I want us to consider. Consider the historic impact of Jesus. Let's take, a, let's take a little journey through history and think about this for a moment. Jesus is the most famous person of human history. More songs have been sung about him, more artwork created about him, more books written about him than any man who has ever lived. We actually measure time on our calendar, the years divide before and after his birth. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, that is in the year of our Lord, measuring the time that Jesus was born. Everything that has ever happened on this planet falls into two categories. Was it before Jesus or after Jesus? The Galilean who in his lifetime spoke to fewer people, fewer people than will fill um, Citizens Bank Park uh, or fewer people that would fill the link. Jesus spoke to, 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 to a very limited number of people, yet that limited number of people that he spoke to uh, went on to carry on his message of a new way of connecting to God and they did that in the first century, and they were so effective in that message that he shared with a few people that at this point in human history, a third of the world names themselves as followers of Jesus, as Christians. No army, no nation or person has changed human history to the, to the degree that Jesus has. That 2,000 years after his death, we're still talking about him. We're still writing about him. He's still as popular as ever. The impact his life has had has sent ripples throughout human history. His influence is immense and it is unavoidable. From art to science to government to medicine to education, he has taught humans about dignity, compassion, forgiveness, and hope. Listen to this quote by, by John Ortberg. In time, the movement he started would give rise to libraries and then guilds of learning. Eventually, Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and virtually the entire Western, Western system of education and scholarship would arise because of his followers. The insistence on universal literacy would grow out of an understanding that this Jesus, who was himself a teacher, who highly praised truth, told his followers to enable every person in the world to learn. It is because of his movement that language, such as we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, entered history. The Roman Empire into which Jesus was born could be splendid but also cruel, especially for the malformed, the diseased, and enslaved. 
This one teacher had said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. And that idea slowly emerged that the suffering of every single individual human being matters and that those who are able to help ought to do so. Hospitals and relief efforts of all kinds emerged from this little truth that Jesus shared. So Jesus' vision of life continues to haunt and to challenge humanity. From the first century to the dark ages, in through to what is now called post-modernity, he is the man who will not go away. And each generation has to deal with who is this Jesus. Uh, N.T. Wright says it this way, uh, people who listened to him at the time said things like, we've never heard anyone talking like this. And they didn't just mean his tone of voice or his skillful public speaking. Jesus puzzled people then, and he puzzles us still. And what we do know about him is so unlike what we know about anybody else that we are forced to ask, as people evidently did at at that time, who then is this? Who does he think he is, and who is he in fact? This is exactly the point we need to know. Who is Jesus? We need a more elevated view of who he is. In, given our historic reality of the impact of Jesus's life, we need to understand who is this man, but that, that's not going to be easy for us to do. Paul warns us about, about this very issue, that getting a clear picture of Jesus is not going to be simple. Uh, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this, He says, now I'm afraid that exactly as the snake seduced Eve uh, with his smooth patter, you are being lured away from the simple purity of your love for Christ. It seems that if someone shows up preaching quite another Jesus than we preached, different spirit, different message, you put up with him quite nicely. So Paul is warning us that that as as this Jesus movement continues, there are going to be these different pictures, different images, uh, different facts that come our way that seem to contradict the Jesus uh, of the gospel writers. And so we need to stand firm and come to a clear understanding of who, in fact, is Jesus. The second thing I want us to consider is to consider the confusing portrait of Jesus in our culture today. I think Paul was so on track when he warns us that there's gonna be these messages about Jesus that you will need to stand up against. And if we survey Jesus within popular culture today, we're gonna see about the, the message of who he is comes from a variety of different places. So Jesus is everywhere in our culture. And in some ways, I think that is, that's wonderful. That's fantastic that we can talk about him freely, that there's, that there's an understanding uh, in a lot of places of, of who he is. But, but the challenge is, uh, since so many people have an understanding of who he is, they seem to feel free to create different portraits or different images of Jesus. So let me show you what I mean when I say Jesus is everywhere. Uh, First, we can see that Jesus is in the world of fashion. Uh, Ashton Kutcher, Brad Pitt all have shared their Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. 
Uh, and maybe you want to adorn that T-shirt with a, with a beautiful gold and diamond uh, uh, representation of Jesus with his, with his diamond glittering beard, right? We can decorate ourselves with Jesus. Or in the world of film, there are more than 100 films about Jesus. Uh, there's a newer miniseries out. I think it's called The Chosen. I haven't started it yet, but it is another portrait of Jesus. And all of these films try to create a different picture of who is this Jesus. Did you know that there are wrestling federations such as wrestling for Jesus? Jesus has even invaded the world of wrestling. There are moon bounces for Jesus. And what's fascinating to me about moon bounces for Jesus is there's not one, but at least two moon bounces for Jesus. Uh, so, you can, so you can celebrate and, and you can enjoy Jesus uh, as, a, as a birthday party. Music, the music industry, it is a billion dollar music industry of, of Christian music. But not only is there a Christian music industry, everybody is singing about Jesus. From Green Day to, to Kanye West, from, from, from gospel to rock to reggae, like Jesus is in songs everywhere. Even in the world of sports, our Lord and Savior for, is thanked for, for touchdowns or, or he's praised for the game-winning shot. Even, even when in boxing, somebody knocks a person out, they're quick to praise uh, Jesus who, who enabled them to do that. Uh, Norm Evans, who's from the Miami Dolphins, he's number 73 there, uh, he wrote a book um, on God's squad, and he said this, I guarantee you Christ would be the toughest guy who ever played this game. If he were alive today, I would picture a six foot six, 260-pound offensive tackle who would always make the big plays and would be hard to keep out of the backfield for an offensive lineman like myself. Right, so there's all of these different pictures and images either directly spoken of or, or implied uh, about Jesus. Again, a quote from John Orberg. He says this, it is in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. The number, and it goes on and on. Like, so think about this. The number of groups that claim to be for Jesus, right? The, the, it seems inexhaustible. Just to name a few, there are Jews for Jesus. There are Muslims for Jesus. There are ex-Masons for Jesus. There are road riders for Jesus. There's cowboys for Jesus. Wrestlers for Jesus. Clowns for Jesus. Puppets for Jesus. And even, yes, atheists for Jesus. Jesus has this way of bringing a diverse group of people to, to circle around him. I mean, just think about the list from Jesse Jackson to Jerry Falwell, from Jim Wallace to James Dobson, from Anne Lamont to Thomas Kincaid, from Billy Graham uh, and Billy Sunday to Bill Clinton and Bill Shakespeare, from Bono to Bach, um, from Beverly Shea to Galileo to Isaac Newton, uh, from Johannes Kepler to Thomas Aquinas to Thomas Akempis to T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien to George Washington and Denzel Washington and George Washington Carver to Abraham Lincoln to Robert E. Lee. From Constantine to Charlemagne, 
from Sarah Palin to Barack Obama, John Milton and John Bunyan, or Mr. Rogers to Lauren Hill and Chuck Norris, right? With all of this information and all of these people circling themselves around Jesus, we are left with the question, who is he? Who is this man? Is he a political revolutionary or is he a, a fraud? Is he a charlatan? It, did, he, did he marry Mary, Mary Magdalene? Is he a, a Galilean zealot? Is he a peasant? Is he a scam? Is he a tool simply for marketing products? However we, however we answer this question, there is this undeniable reality that there is a gravitational pull around Jesus. Our history continues to circle around, circle around this giant in human history. Like the ripples that will occur when you throw a, a rock into a pond, the impact of Jesus' life dropped into the pond of human history continues to make waves. And, and there's something about Jesus that keeps prodding people to do what apart from him they would never do. Think of Francis of Assisi, he gives up his possessions. St. Augustine, he gives up his mistress. John Newton gives up the slave trade. Art and Pat Barufi give up living near family and move to Mississippi. George and Denise Davis, they, they, they move to South Jersey. They give up their, 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 their place of comfort, their, their place of relationships to come and be with us. You heard from Pete and Karen Martine talking about the uncomfortable steps last week that they were taking to, to love others and then to share those stories. People making decisions because of the impact of Jesus being dropped into human history. H.G. Wells is a, a British author and a historian. He wrote the, uh, the, the War of Worlds, and he said this. He marveled that after two millennia, a historian like himself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, he finds the picture uh, centering irresistibly around the life and character of the most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave that would grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? And so H.G. Wells concludes that by this test, Jesus stands first. So we've considered the impact of Jesus historically. We've, we've, we've taken a survey of the confusion around him in our culture. And so I conclude then, it leads me to conclude that it is absolutely essential that we see him, understand him, and know him rightly. It is into this place where we see uh, the impact and confusion around Jesus and how it impacts us. See, the gospels are written to communicate an accurate picture of Jesus, an accurate picture uh, to give us portraits of what he is like. Now, there's this tendency as we read the gospels that we try to harmonize them. We want to line Jesus's life up in chronological order and, and, and mix the, the four gospels together of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John so we can just create this nice timeline. But, but they weren't written that way for a reason. 
They were written separately as individual letters, just like different, um, different uh, painters might create a portrait of an individual in a certain way. And so Matthew is, uh, is, is writing to create a certain portrait of Jesus. And throughout, throughout history, Christian artwork has demonstrated this uh, unique perspective of each of the gospel writers. So you can see here, this is some example of that where Matthew represents Jesus as a man, that he would be king. And he starts out his book with, with a genealogy. And, and so, so there's this, this portrait of Jesus as a man. Mark likes to demonstrate Jesus as, as a lion. And he comes bounding into the narrative and Jesus is, is healing and he's doing mighty things right at the very beginning of the book of Mark. Or the book of Luke portrays Jesus like an ox where he is humble and strong, but he is a servant and he is close to people. And then John represents Jesus as a man, yes, but also as a God right in the beginning of John chapter one, representing how an eagle would soar just like Jesus would soar in his deity. And over the next 10 weeks or so, we wanna clear the dust away and get an accurate picture of who is Jesus. So we're gonna be looking at different aspects of his character. And so we're going to be moving around the gospels, trying to tease out who Jesus actually was. And we're going to be building towards this conclusion that Jesus is Lord. Remember Thomas bowing down to Jesus after he revealed himself the first time to the disciples. Thomas took a look at the, his nail pierced hands and he bowed down and said, my Lord and my God. That was the, the greatest proclamation of Jesus's deity. Jesus's lordship in the gospels came from Thomas as he inspected. That's what we're going to do over these next 10 weeks or so. We want to inspect the, the character of Jesus. So we want to see different aspects of Jesus' life to increase our worship of Jesus as Lord over every area of life. We're going to cover things like Jesus as man, Jesus as God, Jesus and his power. We're going to talk about Jesus and the new kingdom, Jesus and his revolution of grace. We're going to look at Jesus's death, his resurrection. We're going to look at where is Jesus currently now? We're going to talk about Jesus and worshiping him as Lord. And we want to build towards that revelation. We're going to talk about Jesus as Lord over politics, finances, and even our families. Now, I want to close our time together in kind of a unique way. Uh, you might know uh, this celebrity. His name is John Krasinski. Uh, and he got his start on the TV show, The Office. Uh, and he's been organizing this, uh, this, this good news network where he wants to tell some stories of what's happening uh, during COVID-19. And so I want to show you a clip of the show that he puts out. Uh, and in this clip, what he's doing is he is organizing an expression of gratitude toward the COVID-19 unit at his local hospital in Boston. Now, this video is not about... Boston, it's not about, for me, it's not about baseball. It's not about celebrities. It's about the power of gratitude. So please watch it because I think at the core of this little video clip is the core of what this whole sermon series is about. So after you watch the clip, uh, we'll, we'll try and tease out what are the major themes that God has for us in it. 
you would run both clips together. So that I'm just shortening the clip. Good. That the clip will be about five, and then I'll have um, not much after that. I missed the Jesus is Lord slide, but you're going to do those anyway. <clears throat> do I need to clap again? that help you? What's that? All right. I can just keep going? That is an extravagant thank you. I, I, that every time I watch that, there's this sense of, man, I wish I could demonstrate my, my gratitude for our local health workers with such a, a, an extravagant display uh, as he does. But I'm not thinking that, you know, um, Mayor Romano and Gatone Stadium would, would quite carry the same sort of weight in honoring our, our healthcare workers. I do want to say, though, that we are putting something together to honor them and to thank them. So if you could do me a favor, uh, if you would please send me a picture of one of our local healthcare workers. And I would prefer the picture to be in their battle gear, you know, their, their, their bandanas on, their goggles on, and send us uh, their picture and their name and the, the, the place to send it. Just follow the hashtag below. If that doesn't work out for you, you can just email the church office uh, with those images because we want to take some time next Sunday at 9 to honor uh, our healthcare workers and to give them a big uh, to give them a big thank you. And we want to make sure we do that for our healthcare workers that are part of our Living Faith family. Uh, but you might know some other healthcare workers, and we would, love to, we would love to pour out our gratitude to them as well. So if you could, uh, please send in those images uh, this week. Um, and, and I do want to warn you that there will be no um, lifetime sick tickets to the Boston Red Sox or uh, there's no duck boat that is uh, going to be waiting outside. So I don't want to get your uh, hopes up too high, uh, but we do want to make sure we say thank you. I really like that video. And every time I watch it, uh, there's something of, of an emotional response that, that rises up in me. And every time I get an emotional response, I like to ask myself, why? Why? What, what's, what's being stirred inside of me? What am I seeing or learning that is impacting me in this way and drawing me in? And I think as I, as I pondered that with, with this particular clip, I think what's drawing me in uh, is that there is something about the beauty of God that is on display in this story. You see, there are people that are worthy of praise, and those people are receiving the praise that is due to them. And that is powerful. People are, uh, people are working, and, and, and people are serving, and those people that are on the front lines are, are being honored for their service. And there's something inside of me that stands up and applauds when, when what is most valuable is actually demonstrated as such, right? Where when, when someone uh, that is working hard, someone that is sacrificing on behalf of us, when they receive praise, there's something inside of me that says, that is right. 
That is whole. That is good, right? And that, that's a powerful display. And, and I was thinking about this uh, earlier this week, how true it is that when, when we honor the things that are most honorable, when we treasure the things that are most valuable, right, that there's something inside of us that, that rises up in, in wholeness and in joy. And as I see those, those, those healthcare workers that do a thousand things in secret that no one ever knows about, being honored, that something rises up in me and says, that's, that's right to do. I was reading Revelation chapter four this week and the same thing happened to me. I was captivated by this image of Jesus in Revelation chapter four. And as Jesus is exalted, as Jesus is praised, it's this, it's this throne room scene of heaven. And as Jesus is getting praised, something just rises up in me and says, oh, that is so right. That is so right to do. And so the way I want to end our time here is I want to read to you Revelation chapter 4. And I want you just to listen in. You can follow the words on the screen or just, or just close your eyes. I'm not going to try and put any images up because this is, this is the book of Revelation and the images are just, they're fantastic. And it's full of symbolism and, it, and it's full of these just mystical pictures. But what emerges very clearly is Jesus is worthy of praise. So Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me, it was like a trumpet. And it said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had an appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders that were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, uh, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders then fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Living Faith family, over the next few weeks, over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be gazing at various portraits of this Jesus that sits on the throne. 
We're going to look at him with with clarity. We're going to look at him in the portraits of the gospel writers, and we're going to look at different aspects of his character. But I want to tell you that at the outset, my goal for us as a church family, for us in this particular season, my goal is this. I want to establish the absolute reign and authority of Jesus. See, authority is an ugly thing in our culture. It, and, and I think this has contributed to such a mixed understanding of who Jesus actually is. And so this series is designed to reframe our minds and our thinking around the beautiful authority of Jesus as Lord. I'm convinced if by the grace of God, we increase our knowledge of who he was, It gives us the opportunity to grow in our belief and hope in who he is. I'm also convinced that if we increase our understanding of what he did, it gives us the opportunity to fix our hope and our faith in what he will do. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to over these weeks, retrain our minds from driving into the same ruts that we've been, we've been driving in for years. And I pray, Jesus, that we would be people that are filled with confidence in who you are and what you're going to do because we know what you did and how you had previously revealed yourself. And so I pray, Jesus, that we would open up the doorway and allow you to come into our house, just like Zacchaeus did, come to our places of shame and exercise your lordship, exercise your authority. And just like for Zacchaeus, I pray that the outcome of that would be a blessing to the community that you've planted us in. And so I continue to pray that the Living Faith Family of Churches through this global pandemic, uh, would not simply survive, but we would thrive, that we would grow. And I believe the way that we're gonna grow is that we get a bigger picture of who you are, King Jesus. In your name I pray, and for your glory, amen.